Welcome to Eczema Out Loud from the National Eczema Association. I'm Danny Morshead. My guest today is Dr. Mega Tollefson. Mega Tollefson is a pediatric dermatologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. She's here today to give us a better understanding of pediatric atopic dermatitis. Dr. Tollefson, welcome to the podcast. Let's start off with your introduction then, so you can just tell us who you are, what you do, and tell us a little bit about the path you took to pediatric dermatology. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hi, Danny. Thanks for, for having me on. I'm really excited to, to talk about pediatric dermatology and atopic dermatitis in particular. Um, I'm Mega Tollefson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Uh, and I took a little bit of a, a winding path to, to end up doing pediatric dermatology. Uh, came, you know, I'm originally a Californian from the Bay Area, came out to Mayo um, over 20 years ago now to go to school. So um, started in medical school thinking I was going to be a pediatrician. Uh, my passion has always been, you know, working with kids. Um, I find them to be resilient and fun. Um, and I really enjoy um, taking care of uh, you know, kind of families and kids and the and the dynamic that comes with it. So um, I graduated medical school. I started my pediatrics residency here at Mayo, actually. And as a part of pediatric residency, we got exposed to a variety of different sort of subspecialties, you know, within, within pediatrics. And one of the um, elective rotations I did my first year of pediatrics residency was pediatric dermatology. And I just loved it. I loved the kids, I loved, um, you know, taking care of their skin conditions, seeing their skin conditions, um, helping them feel better, maybe have better quality of life. Um, but, you know, I thought, well, dermatology, honestly, dermatology residency is kind of a, can be a hard path and uh, to get to. And so I said, well, I'll probably find something else within pediatrics I'm going to love just as much, but then I never did. <laughs> And so um, I jumped in and I did a dermatology residency and then I did a pediatric dermatology fellowship, um, went back to California um, at Stanford for a year to do that and then came back and joined the staff. And I've been here um, doing pediatric dermatology now for the past uh, kind of 12, 13 years. So that's, that's how I got here. And I think a lot of us in pediatric dermatology, at least of um, the peers in my time period kind of did similarly. I think we're pediatricians at heart first um, and then and find dermatology, pediatric dermatology, which is this incredible community. Mm -hmm. It sure is. So one of your focuses is on hemangiomas. Is there any relationship or crossover between hemangiomas and atopic dermatitis? And can you also explain what hemangiomas are and to let me know if I'm saying it right? <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're saying it right. Yeah. So hemangiomas, um, the most common hemangioma is something we call an infantile hemangioma. Sometimes people also call them strawberry birthmarks. Um, to be honest with you, not a ton of overlap between hemangiomas and atopic dermatitis. There are other vascular birthmarks for infantile hemangiomas. I think the main overlap is that, that both of the conditions often affect, you know, at least they start in infancy terms of like the size and uh, um, ages of the patients, they can be similar, at least at the, in the beginnings. So, so they're a bit different, um, uh, so, but they're both very common um, conditions that we encounter in pediatric dermatology. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. So what, if any, research studies are you currently or recently involved in? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, atopic dermatitis and um, in general, the research right now is, is really exciting. Um, I do a lot of research, you know, in pediatric dermatology, various conditions, um, vascular birthmarks, infantile angioma, psoriasis, eczema, you know, other things. Um, 
but um, for eczema and atopic dermatitis in particular, the main things that I'm focused on right now is actually um, clinical trials. And so I think one of the exciting things is all of the new medications that are coming uh, that are, you know, we for decades, we've only had kind of the same things to, to work with. And now in the past few years, it's really just changed. You know, one of the concerns sometimes with with using topical steroids in atopic dermatitis, especially in young people, is could it have any other impact sort of in the body? Um, and so one of the things we're looking at is, you know, kids that have atopic dermatitis and they're treated with topical steroids, are they at a higher risk for getting fractures, um, bone fractures? And, and fortunately, we found that they're not. So that was kind of one of the things that, that we've done recently. And we're um, the other thing that, that I'm involved in right now is doing kind of an update on kind of caring for kids with atopic dermatitis uh, for the pediatric um, uh, uh, caregiver population, like uh, pediatricians and other primary care practitioners. So many people with atopic dermatitis don't even don't make it to a, a pediatric dermatologist, right? And so it's uh, very important for you know primary care physicians, primary care practitioners to to be comfortable um, taking care of atopic dermatitis, and with all the changes that were that are going on right now, um, you know, just even more important to to kind of share information and and try to do research and educate. And we're so excited about all those changes too. So let's go to the basics for pediatric atopic dermatitis. What are the mechanisms that drive it in children and also, what are some of the common triggers for it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so complicated. You know, as much as we've learned, I think we've learned increasingly that that um, what we used to believe, it's just so much more complicated than that. And so it's really uh, an interplay. There's no one factor that, that drives um, atopic dermatitis. It's a combination of sort of a genetic predisposition, even if it doesn't run in families. You know, sometimes it does. Sometimes it runs with other atopic conditions in families, but other times it doesn't. And so we often see, you know, there can be a family of kids and one kid might be affected and others might not be. And so then what else, you know, that makes us think, well, what else is, is um, playing a role? And so there's definitely environmental um, factors, um, environmental factors that, um, you know, might trigger an immune cascade. Um, and so the, the environment, immunology, genetics, all of those things are, are involved in driving atopic dermatitis. Um, and because there's so many factors, it's really at this point, though I do think that it's a, a goal that's possible in the future, but at this point, we typically can't identify that, hey, if we change this one thing about a child or their environment or their exposures, that we could sort of turn off the atopic dermatitis. Now, we're not quite there yet. But what we do know is that there are some, you know, triggers uh, that happen somewhat commonly or fairly regularly. The one that I see most commonly is actually just being ill, being sick. And so, especially the younger a child, um, the more likely their atopic dermatitis is to flare if they get a, a cold or an upper respiratory infection or an illness of some sort. So, so that's one of them. We, we also, um, a lot of times, especially in the upper Midwest, we'll see temperature changes um, trigger atopic dermatitis. And it's not necessarily always like the colder the time, you know, winter isn't always a trigger um, in in all kids with atopic dermatitis, sometimes it's summer. So for some kids, it can be 
like the air is dry, the uh, it's cold outside. For some kids, it can be, no, it's actually just, it's because it's hot outside and I'm sweating. And for some kids, it's both things. But another fairly common trigger can be just anything that's irritating to the skin. And so uh, whether it's, a you know, fragrances or, um, you know, and some kids like synthetic materials for their clothing Kids, kids who have atopic dermatitis seems to seem to do best with cotton um, clothing, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many different triggers. Yeah. Okay, what does the current treatment landscape look like for pediatric atopic dermatitis? Yeah, great question. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of what we were talking about earlier, and it's it's changing. Um, all, of, all of the sort of, you know, um, longstanding medications are still commonly used. Um, so one part of treatment is definitely maintenance. You know, there's a maintenance component of like, you know, the important things about bathing and moisturizing, avoiding triggers as much as possible. And then there's the other part of it, which is, you know, treating the inflammation, treating the rash when it comes, treating the itch, um, those things. So for the second part of it, you know, the mainstay historically, as we are probably all aware, has been topical steroid medications. And that's still really the most common um, prescription uh, medication that's used in, in treating pediatric atopic dermatitis. And the nice thing about it is that we have such a range of topical steroid medicines, um, you know, in terms of strength, um, in terms of um, potential side effects, which are often related to strength, uh, the kind of vehicle, you know, whether it's a cream or an ointment. Um, so there, there are a lot of options that can be tailored you know, to each child, um, including, you know, how chronic their atopic dermatitis is, how resistant to treatment it is, and where it's located on their body most commonly. Um, but otherwise, beyond that, um, then the options have really um, just um, expanded. And so uh, the most, you know, the original, I guess, non-steroidal topical medication group is the topical calcineurin inhibitors. They're still really commonly used, and that's like the pemecrolimus and tacrolimus. Um, then there's the another class of medicines that's recently been developed called the, uh, the, the they're the, you know, uh, prostaglandin inhibitors, so like uh, chrysoboral, and there's some emerging ones. Um, now there's another class, the topical jack inhibitors, um, one of which was recently approved um, for, for ages 12 and up, um, which seemed to work really well for the itch part. So, so topically, there's, there's been you know, now a whole host of medicines, and hopefully as we get more and more of them, they get a little bit more affordable <laughs> and more available um, to, to everybody. And then beyond topical medicines, that's really changed as well. You know, in the past, we used to use we have used to have to use uh, medicines that had a lot of potential side effects, a wide range of immune suppress, you know, immunosuppressant um, tendencies, and we call those the conventional systemic medications. And I think those really don't have to be used as much anymore, um, unless it's for insurance coverage purposes, which which does happen. Um, so I would say from a systemic perspective, things really changed once dupilumab um, came. Uh, to the field. And that has been probably the most transformative medication for atopic dermatitis um, that there probably ever has been after topical steroids. So, um, you know, now um, dupilumab, um, when 
a, a child with pediatric atopic dermatitis cannot be controlled safely or reliably with, you know, a topical regimen, that's often our first line. The downside to it is it's an injection, but it can be really, really helpful in, in kids that it works in. Um, there are a whole host of other systemic medicines that are coming. Um, there's the oral JAK inhibitors, which um, uh, are, there's one that's now approved um, uh, in 12 and up. And there are other ones that are also coming. I don't want to forget, though, about uh, phototherapy. Uh, phototherapy is an old modality, uh, but, but a fairly safe one. It can be challenging logistically to, to obtain and, and um, uh, can, be, can be a challenge to have available depending on, on where you live, how close you are to a dermatologist and insurance coverage. So uh, that's something that we, we use somewhat regularly. Um, but again, as life gets busier for people in general, it gets harder and harder um, to do. So many good options and more coming. It's great. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to actually even keep up sometimes, <laughs> which is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. So one question we get from our parents quite often is, how do I bathe and moisturize my child and how should that routine change over time? Can you speak to the basics of bathing and moisturizing for children with atopic dermatitis? Yeah. Such an important question. Um, so it, it does change a little bit, you know, when, when kids are infants versus when they get a little bit older. So Usually in infancy, I, uh, I usually say, especially the early infancy time period, probably bathing every couple of days is just fine. Um, you know, whatever makes sense to the family, because, um, you know, it, it can be hard to bathe an infant every single day. <laughs> um, so, but as far as when kids get a little bit older, there is actually um, a good study recently. I mean, we used to go back and forth a lot about, you know, how how often is is proper and correct. And um, a good study recently demonstrated that actually bathing every day, once a day, can be really helpful for kids that have um, atopic dermatitis, as long as those kids are getting moisturized right afterwards. And when we think about bathing, you know, we want um, probably, you know, 10 to 15 minutes at most, um, a, kind of a, a lukewarm water, not too hot, not too cold. Um, some people like to, you know, add some dilute bleach in there, which can be helpful if a child is really prone to recurrent infection. Um, and then um, right after the, and as far as like a soap or something like that goes, really a, a we want to try to avoid harsh soaps and really use more um, of what are called, you know, kind of gentle cleansers that aren't true soaps. And, and they really only need to be used to, for dirty areas. And, you know, when kids are really young, those dirty areas might not be quite as many, usually a diaper area. If they're eating table food, sometimes around the mouth, that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, and then as soon as they come out of the bath, uh, they should be sort of pat dry so that there's some moisture on there and then um, moisturizer right away afterwards. Um, as kids get older, you know, sometimes they get a little more resistant to that that daily bath um, and they might prefer a shower. Um, I usually say, you know, whatever makes sense. Um, it's better for a child to have a, a shower than to not be, you know, cleansed or bathed um, as long as that water isn't super scalding hot. Um, as far as moisturizer goes, you know, ideally, most kids who have atopic dermatitis, they sort of 
start out at recommending twice a day moisturizer, once after a bath or shower, um, and then the other the other time of day. Um, but that can be adjusted up or down, you know, depending on on how dry a child's skin tends to be, maybe depending on the season. And then usually the thicker the better. So, um, you know, some of the ointment-based moisturizers can be a little too greasy. Um, sometimes families like using that just at night. So only pajamas and maybe bed sheets get dirty. Um, otherwise it can be really messy around the house. And so really kind of try to focus on those thick cream-based moisturizers as much as possible in that situation. As kids get even older though, like when we get to sort of the preteen teen time, I think that's the time that a, a lot of families um, have some difficulty, right? Like it's natural for, for kids of that age to sort of rebel against, um, maybe taking care of their skin. They, they need to start to own some of their own skincare. And when that happens, even though I don't prefer lotions because they're not quite as moisturizing as the ointments or the creams, um, I sometimes do just, just say, yeah, if, if that's all you can get your teen or preteen to use, that's probably better than nothing. I'm curious why you would prefer a gentle cleanser over, say, a regular soap. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so regular soaps can be um, irritating. You know, they can um, they can kind of disrupt that top layer, that skin barrier more than a gentle cleanser. And so the gentle cleansers tend to be the most sort of comforting um, and gentle on atopic skin. Gotcha. That makes sense. All right. And my last question for you is, what is your favorite part of being a dermatologist? Oh, wow. Oh, um, my favorite part of being a dermatologist honestly, is um, taking care of families. That's that's what I enjoy the most. And I think uh, when you are a pediatric anything, like healthcare provider, you have to enjoy that because it's such a big part of, 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 of care. Um, I think we learn so much because we're, we're taught in textbooks how certain conditions should be treated. But in reality, it's not until you talk to patients and their families, you figure out what makes sense and what's possible. And you have to work together to come up with, um, you know, wh what's best for, for that patient and that family. Mm. I, can, I, can I also give you a number two? Of course, yeah. As many as you want. <laughs> My number two is uh, the pediatric dermatology community. I, I think it's a group of people that um, they just, pediatric dermatologists truly care about, they care about patients, they care about each other. Um, and, and we have a community that just works so well together. It, it feels like a work family. And how are you interacting with those people? Is it mostly in person, at conferences, online? Um, all of the above. Um, you know, pre-COVID, we would have regular conferences that we would see each other at. Um, there's a pediatric dermatology conference every year, and that's probably the biggest one. But um, so there's there's conferences, but then um, we end up working on a lot of things together, you know, whether it's through... Um, NEA or it's through other, you know, um, patient advocacy group organizations or it's through the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance, which a lot of us are a part of. Uh, and I think, you know, honestly, we become friends over time. And so sometimes we share like challenging patient situations, you know, bounce ideas off of each other. Um, and sometimes we just chat like friends do. <laughs> so all of the above. <laughs> yeah, the community is so important. Yeah, great. Yeah, you're definitely giving us a better understanding of pediatric AD. And I feel like we get pretty granular a lot, but it's good to take a step back and just kind of cover the basics. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Eczema Out Loud. You can visit the National Eczema Association at www.nationaleczema.org. If you have feedback on this episode, or you'd like to send in a suggestion for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at We hope you'll join us next time.